Today's scripture reading is from Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 to 21. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from chains, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, the Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I had destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. Or through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pause and pray again. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who inspired the words that we just heard, and we ask that he would speak to us from them right now for Christ's glory. Amen. This fall we're studying the book of Galatians and much of Galatians deals with matters of doctrine. Galatians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to address some false teaching that was having an impact on the, the churches of his day. So there are, there are large portions of this book that are focused on explaining orthodox Christian belief, doctrinal matters, what we ought to, what we ought to believe about God. Um, this passage, however, is, is different. This passage is dealing with hypocrisy. We see that word in verse 13, hypocrisy. And when, when a person is struggling with hypocrisy, they might have perfect theology. I mean, they might believe all the right things about God, but the problem is, to some degree, their life won't be matching up with what they believe. For example, I believe with all my heart that God is sovereign. And that means um, I believe that no matter what's going on, God is in control. Now, if you see that I'm always filled with worry and anxiety and anger and fear, um, you'd have to conclude that to some degree my life doesn't line up with my beliefs, right? I believe God's in control, but I'm not living that way. N another example, um, like a lot of Christians, 
I believe that God hears and answers prayer. Do you believe that? I believe that, all right? But if I don't pray very much, I never have time for prayer, you know, you know you'd have to conclude that my life, my life isn't, it's not sinking uh, together with my beliefs, all right? So that's, that's hypocrisy. And can we be honest? We all struggle with that to some degree, right? Our, our lives don't always match what we believe with our hearts. And that's, that's what's going on in this passage. The people named here, there's several people named in this passage. Cephas, that's another name for Peter. He had, he, had a, he, he had his Aramaic name. He had his Greek name. Like a lot of people today will have names for different nationalities that they're relating to. So that's Cephas is Peter. Um, there's James. There's Barnabas. And you know what we know from, from Scripture? None of those men who are named here were heretics. These guys were not false teachers. They knew the gospel. In fact, James and Peter actually wrote part of the Bible. These, these guys, they believed the right things about God. The problem they were wrestling with is on this one occasion, there, were, there was a certain aspect of their life that just wasn't lining up with what they believed. And so P, uh, Paul, who wrote this, he's just kind of recounting this incident and the words that he said to his friends to help them with this particular struggle. And here's... Here's what fascinates me about this passage. Paul is confronting these guys who aren't living out what they believe. And how does he confront them? He does not confront them with the law of God. He doesn't scold them. He doesn't beat them up with, with the law. He doesn't say, you know, the, the Bible says, thou shalt not be racist, and you're being racist. Or the Bible says, thou shalt love thy neighbor, and you're not loving thy neighbor. The Bible says, thou shalt not be unkind, and thou art being unkind. You know, he, doesn't, he doesn't beat them up with the law. What does he do? They're, they're, they're struggling with the behavioral issues like we all do. And if you look at his words in verse 14 through 21, Paul addresses this behavioral problem with the gospel. The gospel, the gospel is the message of everything that God has done for us as his people through his son, Jesus Christ. And Paul, he just comes and he talks to them about Jesus, what God has done for them through Jesus. And here, here's why he does it. Guys, because listen, the gospel is powerful. This simple message of what God has done for us, it's powerful, guys. It, it, if you let it sink in, you really let it sink into you, the gospel message can transform your life. So let me, here's what I want to do, just point out from this passage, two ways that the gospel message can transform us. All right, here's the first one. The message of the gospel can transform the way we view each other, the way we look at people around us. So the scene that uh, Paul is describing in this passage is something that took place in the ancient city of Antioch. And in Acts chapter 11, you read all about Antioch, how the gospel came to that city, the church that was started there, what was going on in Antioch. And the church that started in Antioch was the very first multi-ethnic church in the history of the world. In, in the church in Antioch, for the first time in history, there's a community of faith, a congregation that was comprised both of Jewish believers in Jesus Christ and Gentile believers in Jesus Christ. And this... Um, this was amazing because if you, know, if you know the history of those two groups, you know all about the hatred and the racial strife and the ethnic animosity that existed between them. I mean, for, listen, for centuries, little Jewish boys and girls had been raised and taught by their parents 
don't go near those Gentiles. They're bad people. They hurt people like us. Stay away from them. Don't even talk to them. They, they were just raised to hate and fear Gentiles. And for centuries, Gentiles had not just been hating Jews. They had been oppressing them and attacking them and, and mistreating them. So there's just there's centuries of history of hatred and bloodshed between these two groups of people in this city called Antioch. And then the gospel came there. And they heard about Jesus. They heard about what Jesus had done for them, and they trusted in him. And these people from these very different backgrounds were joined together in one church. And it was beautiful. The whole world kind of stopped in astonishment. What's going on here? In fact, if you read in Acts chapter 11, that apparently the, the broader city of Antioch, they did not know what to think about this community of Jews and Gentiles who were, who were formed together as a, as a family of faith. They, in fact, they had to come up with a new word to describe them. They couldn't refer to them as Jews because they were Gentiles there also. And Jews don't hang out with Gentiles. And they couldn't call them Gentiles because there were Jews there and Gentiles don't hang out with Jews. They had to come up with a new word for this, this community of people. And so you read in Acts 11 that in Antioch was the very first place that followers of Jesus Christ were called Christians. We need a word for these people. They called them, it was, it was beautiful. Until one day, it just kind of, started to spread through their congregation like a contagion. It started maybe with one or two, and then it just, some of the Jewish believers in that congregation began to draw back relationally from the Gentile believers. You read, read about that in verse 12. It says, before certain men came from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. They, they, they just stopped going to their homes. They stopped eating lunch together. They stopped hanging out together. They, they just kind of drew back. And it's not hard to imagine how they might have defended that action. I can imagine the, the ones who were drawing back saying, listen, is it, really, is it really so bad? I mean, what's wrong with that? That I don't eat lunch with them. I mean, okay, I, I, it, it, I still recognize these Gentile believers as followers of Jesus Christ. I know that they're going to heaven. I'm not saying they're not saved. I'm not saying they're not bad, that they're bad people. In fact, I'm still willing to go to church with them every Sunday. But do I really have to eat lunch with them? I mean, I only have so much free time in the weekend. I just use my free time to hang out with my friends. Do I really have to eat with the Gentiles? Now, let me ask, if, if you if you were back there and they were asking you those questions, how, how would you respond to that? If you are familiar with the teachings of Jesus Christ, I bet I know how you would respond. You would say, yes, you do. You do have to eat with them. You have to eat with them. And here's why you would say that, because you know what Jesus taught. John chapter 13, Jesus said this, a new command I give you. Go to the same church together. No, hey, the pastor's changing the Bible. Don't let him do that, all right? That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, a new command I give you, what? Love one another. He said, 
A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. He said, by this will everyone know that you are my disciples, not if you merely sit together for one hour every Sunday morning. He says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Every Christian knows that, that our Savior Jesus, he called us, his call is a call to what? A call to love. And if you, listen, if you, if you love somebody, don't you want to get to know them? Don't you want to come to understand them? Don't you want to come to understand what the world looks like through their eyes? What does the world look like to, through the eyes of someone born on the other side of the planet than you are? What is, men, what does the world look like through the eyes of your sisters? Women, what does the world look like through the eyes of your brothers? What does the world look like to someone who grew up in a different ethnicity? You just, if you love someone... You want to understand this, and so what do you do? You, you spend time with them, you hang out with them, you break bread with them. Why do you do this? Because you love them, right? So you understand this decision this, in this ancient church of, of this, this few Jewish believers to kind of just hang out with their own kind and draw back from these other believers. Listen, this was very serious. It was a violation of Christ's law of love. You know, Jesus in, in Matthew 5, verse 47, in the in Sermon on the Mount, he said, if you only greet your brothers, meaning if you only hang out with your own kind, he said, if you only greet your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? Like Christ would say, listen, if, if, uh, if to the extent that you only spend time with your, with your own kind of people, he would say, to that extent, the gospel hasn't changed you yet. So believer, next time you're out to eat with a group of friends, look around the table. Next time you're on vacation, look around the campfire. All right? If every face you see looking back at you is kind of like you, you know, you have to ask yourself, what's going on here? What's, what's happening? You see, this, this was a serious problem in that church in Antioch that they weren't spending time with people different than them. And so Paul called them on the carpet, right? He, had, he addressed it, he did it publicly because everyone needed to know what was going on. And the way, as I said, the way he addressed this was not by shaming them, not by scolding them, not by beating them up with the law. He just reminded them of the gospel. And so what he did was he reminded his Jewish friends, and Paul himself was Jewish, he reminded his Jewish friends that even though, yeah, these Gentiles are kind of weird, he reminded them that at the deepest level of their personal experience, they shared something in common with these Gentile believers that, listen, was more significant than any measure of ethnic identity they could ever point to. They had something deep in common with these people from a different background. And what was it that they had in common? They were all sinners saved by grace. All of them. Here's how Paul said it, verse 15 and 16. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So he's basically saying, listen, guys, I, I, I know that we come from a very different background than those guys. I know we grew up in a very different neighborhood than they did, but you know what? 
We all got into God's family the very same way, didn't we? We all got in here through the very same door. We're all here by grace because Christ died for our sins. Now, when, um, when you know that, that what you have in common with someone else is that you were saved through the blood of the very same Savior that they were, don't you kind of look at them differently? Not merely as members of the same church. You see them, see them as family now, right? I wonder if that's happened to you. I know it's happened to people in this church. Some of you, you have um, among your closest friends, think about it, among your closest friends, people that, listen, if you hadn't become a Christian and they hadn't become a Christian, not only would your lives, your paths probably never would have crossed. If they had crossed, you would have just ignored each other. But now you love them. It's like they're family to you. It, you know what I'm talking about? It's like they're among your closest friends. That's what the gospel does for us. It just, we view people differently now. They're from a different background, but we say, you know what? You're my brother. You're my sister. It helps us, it helps us with cultural differences. It also helps us with just interpersonal differences. You, you know, have, has anyone here ever been hurt by someone else? It's hard to forgive, right? But when the gospel sinks in, you see yourself. I am someone saved by grace. It just empowers you to let go. Man, there's enough grace for all of us here, right? You just, you can forgive. So that, that's what was going on uh, in Antioch. They just need to re be reminded of the gospel so they could really, really love people whom they did not find it easy to love. We're going to get to some good verses later in, in Galatians. Here's one we'll see when we get to chapter 3, starting at verse 26 of Galatians 3. These are amazing words. It says this, In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ what the gospel can help us to see. So, you see how this message can transform you? One way, uh, the gospel message can transform the way that we see each other. Second way, the gospel message can transform the way you see yourself. Now, um, this decision of, of some of these ancient Jewish believers to kind of stop eating with Gentile believers, it, it, listen, this was more than just racism. I mean, I know that we live in a country with a long history of racism, so it's very easy for us to read this passage only through that lens. All this is talking about is racism. No, listen, there's a lot more going on here than just that. Um, for first century Jewish people, cultural and ritual purity were the ways that you established your own self-worth. Cultural Ritual purity was the way to prove that you were a somebody. So in, 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 that, in that setting, if you could prove um, that you had never eaten non-kosher food, or you could prove that you had never sat down to lunch in a Gentile's kitchen, or if you could, if you could just prove that you were pure in these ways. Listen, in the culture of first century, century Judaism, um, your social status would increase. But 
if your diet had not been strictly kosher, if your friends were not all Jews, your status in the eyes of your peers would go down. Now, that sounds weird, right? But before we dismiss them as weird, think about, think about the bizarre ways in our culture that we establish our self-worth. I mean, they're, they're, they're just as weird. The clothes you wear, the car you drive, um, w whether your build, your physique resembles that of the celebrities you see on television, hmm? the, the, the school you graduated from, the kind of job you have, somehow that increases your worth as a human, right? Whether or not parents, you're, you're, there's, there's a shelf full of trophies in your children's bedroom. I mean, all of these, listen, all of these arbitrary random factors are the ways in our culture that our culture will tell you you either have or do not have intrinsic worth as a human being. It's just as, as bizarre today. And if you get caught up in that, that can crush you. Maybe some of you, um, you cannot feel good about yourself as a person unless you prove to your parents that you can marry the right kind of person. Or you cannot feel good about yourself as a person unless you can prove to your dad that you can get the right kind of job. You can't feel good about yourself as a, as, a, as, a, as a person, young people, unless you can prove to your friends at school that you get invited to the popular parties. You can't feel good about yourself as, as a person unless you know, somehow you can fit into the right size dress that you're supposed to be able to fit into. You, you see, you, listen, you get caught up in these things, and if you don't live up to them, how do you feel? You feel worthless, you feel inferior, you feel like a failure. You feel ashamed. And that's what was going on here back in ancient Antioch. Um, look at ver again at verse 11 and 12. It says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. So, you see, Peter wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't just a racist. In fact, if you study the book of, of Acts, he wasn't a racist at all. Do you know that the very first Christian leader to stand up and publicly advocate for the full inclusion of Gentiles in the church was who? It was Peter. He wasn't really a racist. He was just afraid. Afraid of what people would think about him. Afraid, afraid that he would lose status. Afraid that he wouldn't be viewed as a, as, a, as a successful man if somehow he didn't measure up in the eyes of his peers. And let me tell you, if you're dealing with that today, just feeling like a failure, feeling like you don't measure up, feeling like somehow your life is worthless, doesn't it? It's just crushing you. And here's, listen, here's the good news. The gospel sets you free from that. Just sets you free. Because when you come to Christ, you know what happens? You come to Christ, you really get to know him. Your identity is no longer wrapped up in your accomplishments. Your identity is no longer wrapped up in your appearance. 
Your identity, parents, is no longer wrapped up in whether or not you have the perfect children. Your, your identity is no longer wrapped up in the kind of job or income you have. When you come to Jesus, your identity is what? It's him. All of who you are is wrapped up in him. And you, you know that you have value in the eyes of the only person in the universe whose opinion matters. You have value in the eyes of God. Because when he looks at you, he sees the goodness and the beauty of his son. That's what Paul, I think, is talking about in verse 19 and 20. These are not the easiest verses in the Bible to understand, but here's what he says. He says, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live because Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Here's, here's the way those verses were paraphrased in, in a, um, an edition of the Bible called The Message. It says this. What actually took place is this. I tried keeping rules and working my head off to please God, and it didn't work. So I quit being a law man so I could become God's man. Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It's no longer important that I appear righteous before you or, or have your good opinion, and I'm no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not my life because it's lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see what Paul is saying to his friends? He's saying, guys, you can get off that treadmill of trying to impress people. You don't have to run on that anymore. It happened to me. I don't even, I don't even think about myself as me anymore. My identity is Christ, and I'm free. Listen, the more that happens to you, um, you just see, you know, I don't have to live for the approval or affection of others because God loves me. The more that happens, what you find is sort of like this snowball effect in your life. You find yourself having greater and greater victory over all kinds of sins. You no longer have to go to bed with somebody you know you shouldn't be sleeping with because you feel like, you know, I don't have to have their love. I don't have to do this anymore. You, you no longer have to lie to people and exaggerate things because you, you know, I don't have to impress anyone. You no longer have to wear a mask all the time and hide what's really going on in your life because you feel like, you know what? I got nothing to hide. I'm just wrapped up in the goodness of Jesus. Take a look if you want. It just, you see, it just it begins to transform you. You see yourself differently because you know because of Jesus, you're loved. Well, let me, uh, let me close with this, this illustration. Um, I've used this before, but I like it, so I'm going to milk one more sermon out of it and use it again, all right? Um, Greg Luganis is perhaps the, one of the greatest Olympic divers in the history of that sport, and to me, it seems like um, competitive diving has got to be one of the highest pressure sports that you can imagine. I mean, think about it. It's not like you're part of a team where you can blame your teammate. You're up there all by yourself. 
standing on this platform. You're basically naked. I mean, you have a very skimpy uh, bathing suit on. And this whole stadium of people is staring at you. There's a whole line of judges. They have their clipboards out there just waiting to see you make a mistake. And you jump off and you have a split second to do everything perfectly. And if you don't do everything perfectly, they'll see the splash and they'll know that you failed. Imagine the pressure, right? But anyway, this guy, Luganus, he, he just one competition after another. He'd go up there and boom, he'd nail these dives just like it's nothing. Just again and again and again, he would take home the, the, uh, the medal. And so one day, some reporter asked him, Mr. Luganus, how do you do it? How do you stay so calm up there? And here's what he said. He said, whenever I'm about to dive, I go to the end of the platform take a deep breath, and I say to myself, Greg, even if you blow this dive, your mother will still love you. And I jump. Christian, even if you blow this dive, even if you don't attain any of your goals, even if you never accomplish your dreams, even if your family doesn't turn out the way you dreamed, even, even if you find yourself struggling again and again with the same old temptations, even if you completely blow it, listen to me, your heavenly Father will still love you because His love for you is not based on you. It's not based on what you accomplish or what you fail to accomplish. It's not based on what you feel inside or, or don't feel inside. His love for you is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. So jump. Dive into life. Love people courageously. Live for Christ boldly. I mean, jump. What do you got to lose, right? You're loved. So the gospel, man, it can just change you. It takes some time. It's not like, you know, you hit a light switch and you're little by little. You hear it again and again, it starts to sink in. You see other people with eyes you've never seen them with before. You have friends you never dreamed would be your friends before. And you look in the mirror, and you start to see yourself the way God does. You see the beauty of Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we pray that you do something supernatural for each person here, that this old, old story of Jesus and his love would sink in deeply, that it would radically change the way we view each other, that we would be empowered to love people whom we do not find it naturally easy to love, and that we would we would be, be radically set free from feeling like we have to impress the world. And we would live with joy for you. Give us grace so that these things would be true in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.